for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Let's uh, go to Deuteronomy 7. We're in a series entitled Shaped for Glory Through Mission. And in this series, we're looking at five resolutions that help us understand how it is that God engages us to participate in our spiritual growth. And we looked at the first resolution, which basically said, shape my heart in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4, 5, and 6. And then the last three weeks, we talked about God shape my life, the second resolution in verse uh, uh, 6 of Deuteronomy 6 through the end of the chapter. And so we, we've, we've covered two of the resolutions. And the reason that we're shaping these in resolutions is I'm trying to create the understanding of our participation. And so a resolution doesn't just articulate what we do for God, but rather it articulates our understanding of what God has done for us and what He is doing in us and what He wants to live out through us. And so I just want to be clear about that each and every week. And so today, we come to our third resolution of shape my church. And here's kind of the big idea we're going to uh, uh, aim at today. It's simply this, that God unites His people and shapes them to serve His kingdom mission in the world. God unites His people and shapes them to serve His kingdom mission in the world. So our resolution today is shape my church. And so I resolve by the power of Holy Spirit at work in me to shape my church by God's covenant to live as His people for His glory. Now we talk about covenant a lot, just like we talk about the gospel a lot. And the one hesitation I have is this, that I do not want to just make the assumption everybody in the room understands what it means. And I don't have a lot of time to unpack it today, but let me just give the basic points of what the covenant means in the Old Testament. The Old Testament covenant simply says this, God says, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell among you. And we know that the gospel in the New Testament, where Christ comes, lives a perfect life, dies a perfect death, and raises to leave a tomb perfectly empty as he ascends to his perfect position at the right hand of the Father, where he currently rules today, we know that the gospel is the fullest expression and completion of the covenant that God established in the Old Testament. So what God was doing in the Old Testament is not something distinct or separate from the New Testament. But it is the story, it's the narrative of God, of His sovereign, gracious love for us being poured out upon us. And what we're looking at in the book of Deuteronomy is it's the foundation It's the foundation for the entirety of the Old Testament and really for the understanding of what's taking place in its entirety of the New Testament. So last week as we looked at the final, the 
there were three sermons on the second resolution, basically. And, and it seemed to resonate so deeply uh, with so many people and, and hit close to home because we, we, we have so many young households in our church and people just getting married or about to get married or young children or children and, you know, or helping somebody with children, something of that nature. And so as you think about all these things, it, we kind of ask the question, where does God lead us when he shapes our lives, i.e. shape my heart, when he shapes our homes or our families, i.e. shape my life? life, where does he lead us from this? And that's what we're going to address today in Shape My Church. There's three big mistakes I think that are made so commonly today that, that, that basically people can't figure God out by the making of these mistakes. And I'm going to briefly cover them with you. First of all, people per- forsake the necessity of a home structure with Jesus as the center. More often than not, Jesus is an accessory. He's a tag-on. He's present or around, but he's not Lord. And if Jesus is not Lord, he's not really present, no matter what letters you spell or labels you wear. So that's, that's the first big mistake, is that there's a proximity to Jesus, but he's not positioned correctly in your life or in your home in your family. The second mistake that's so often made is this, that church is made to be an activity in life instead of an identity of life. And some of this is because of where we are in American Christianity. But church is just an activity. It's something you go to once a week or twice a week or in some of your thinkings, not as much as I ought to, but maybe I ought to try better. You know, I mean, that, that's kind of how we think of church, right? We think of the organization of it, of the corporate nature of it, but we so often forsake the aspect of identity for our life. And when we do that, we inevitably forsake the value of its first priority in relationship with other Christians. And so we, we go about the world looking for other people who call themselves Christians so we can have Christian friends, all the while we're forsaking the local church that God has made us a part of where he's put people all around us whom he's put into our life for the very purpose of those priority relationships. When I was a kid, my uncle would play cruel tricks on me. It's okay. I got many people back for what he did to me. And he'd go, okay, we'll play hide and seek. And he'd find something I really wanted, like his pocket knife or his watch. I'd go, oh, yeah, 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 let's do it. And he'd go, okay, you go hide, and I'm going to hide this. And if you can find it, you can have it. And I remember one time, man, he put it on the dining room table right in the middle. And he said, okay, Lane, come find it. I turned that house upside down. Never found it. And he went, it's right here. I mean, it was right in front of me. Felt like an idiot, which is exactly what he was trying to make me do. But I never found it, so I didn't get it that time. He also made me run laps around the house and then just wouldn't give it to me. But that's what happens to us in the church. We turn our lives inside out looking for the right person when all the while we've just forsaken the people sitting next to us because they didn't fit our bill, but they were delivered to us by God. That's what the local church is all about. Another big mistake is this. They forsake the necessity of actively engaging to live mission and following Jesus. Mission something you just don't have time for, man. I, man, I'm busy. Oh, yeah, what? Busy. Isn't, isn't that like the, the middle name of Americans, right? 
And you go, I don't have time just to add to my schedule, add to my expenses. And so we're going to confront these mistakes that so easily get made and show this. Here's the thing. We all make them. And we make them much more regularly than we care to. But how critical they are for us. God shapes the church by four traits. And I want us to look at these four traits today to understand what God is doing as He unites His people to shape them. Because He shapes us to be distinctive, to be distinguished in the world as His people. The first trait that we'll look at is this. God shapes the church by mission to serve His kingdom purpose in the world. God shapes the church by mission to serve his kingdom in the world. We're going to uh, read some in chapter 7. We're not going to read every verse. So as I read through, I'll try to help you know where I'm at in the reading. In this first portion, I'm going to read the first three verses uh, of chapter 7. Deuteronomy records, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you. I'm going to skip the naming of the nations. Seven nations, it says, more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. And let me stop there for just a moment. That's actually two verses, not three. For the sake of time, I'll try to introduce us to the remainder of it. What Moses is saying here is he's instructing the Israelites about the realities of what they're about to be confronted by. They're about to cross the river, enter into the promised land, and in so doing, they're going to have a lot of new people and new experiences that they're exposed to. And God's leading them to get this, not to conquer the land, but to do what? Take possession of it. There's a big difference there. If somebody says, go pick that up, and you go over and take it and pick it up, it's yours, that's easy. If, God, if someone says, you go pick it up, and you know there's a giant man there saying, over my dead body, that's different, right? And what's God saying? Go pick it up. Go take it. I'm giving you possession of it. And so he's instructing them as he is leading them. And what he's wanting to say to them is this. I've made provisions for you and I've established this life in relationship with me. And at the center of it is worship. And see, here's what he said. He said, when you go into the new land, what is common to you will be foreign to the people who live there. And the new experiences that are exposed to you, that you encounter, should never be used as a substitute for God's command. This is the warning that Moses is giving to them. But I would say in a broader scale, friends, this is the essence of mission. And, and I, I want to mess with your mind a little bit this morning and redefine what mission is, what our understanding of God's kingdom mission is all about. We cannot reduce it and think that we can satisfy it or even engage in it. You see, the essence of mission for the Christian is this. It's following God where He leads to receive what He provides and live in such a way to honor Him first in every way. That's the essence of mission. I'm telling you more than a trip, more than an activity, more than a task or anything on a to-do list. Mission is faithfully living by faith 
in Christ Jesus every day. It's the essence of mission. God leads his people in mission in order to shape them unto himself in the world. And that's something we'll unpack more and more. I do want to quickly address two issues that arise here that cause problems for some people in understanding God. The first issue is this, that God commands for complete destruction. You see, sometimes God gets blamed in the Old Testament for his unrighteous actions towards people. And, and, and while I would clarify that Moses' words make no concessions or exceptions for handling those who lived in the land that would oppose God, but I would also the, say this, that throughout history, archaeology has never found any iota of proof or evidence to say that there were mass destructions of people during this period of history. And we must be careful that we don't impose upon God in his nature and character our understanding that at best is finite, broken, and incomplete. But trust what he is saying. What Moses is saying, and that's why I point out the, the key verse, verse 3 there in these, first three, in these first five verses. Moses' words demonstrate the seriousness uh, to... Uh, let me try that again. Moses' words demonstrate the seriousness that God's people were to give to their own obedience more than it sets forth a strategy of war for them. You see what I'm playing there? See what I'm trying to do? I'm saying this, sometimes we look at it and go, well, God just said go kill everybody, and we conceive of it as a strategy of war. But what Moses, the essence of what he is saying is in verse 3 there, you shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. He's talking about the, maintaining the purity of their worship when they enter the land. Covenant are those binding contracts. It's those things that they would commit themselves to that would force them to shift priorities away from God to the things that the people of that land wanted them to do. And they would ultimately forsake God as they followed the cultures and the patterns and the habits and the practices of the people in the land. And I'll say this here. I'll probably say it again towards the end. It is very difficult for us to conceive of the vile and wicked nature of the Canaanites. Quite frankly, there's not a person in the room that I don't care how bad you've seen life, you've seen nothing that compares to the Canaanite regular practice, open and public in that world. It is more vile, repulsive. As a matter of fact, if I began to describe it, just what history records, you'd be offended by it. It's just not appropriate for public discourse. So let us be careful lest we accuse God of being unmerciful and saying that we're more merciful in declaring what he didn't do and we think he should have done. The second thing is this, it's intermarriage. This has been used to, uh, to decry throughout history. Uh, some people, quote-unquote Christians, uh, opposing interracial marriage. And that's not what Moses is saying here at all. Again, the focus here is worship. Focus here is worship. And in that day and time, marriages were used more as business contracts than they were relational joinings. And so God is teaching them this and identifying them this when he says, do not make commitments to these people that will lead you away from me. That's what he's teaching them. He's emphasizing this spiritual exclusivity for the people in the faithful 
worship of Yahweh. You see, what was so important in the land that he was teaching them was simply this, that communion with God and fellowship with one another was a first priority for God's people. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them is the essence of all he says here. When we go to the New Testament, Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians. You should not be unequally yoked with people in situations where your priorities will be conflicted and opposed by those that you yoke yourself to. You should not yoke yourself to those people. You should not yoke yourself in those situations and with those circumstances because it will cause you to forsake God as your first priority. That's what he's telling them. He says this, when you unequally yoke yourself, you divide your priorities beyond your control and then you are forced into a situation where you have to perform and you have to because you've obligated yourself. You see, how the Israelites related to the new people and handled every experience was to be guided first and foremost by God's word to them. God shapes his people through mission. That's what he's saying. You're going to go in and this is going to happen and I want you to know I'm there with you and I'm going to show up and I'm going to shape you in the midst of this. But here's what you must remember. Do not make your own way. I have made the way for you. And that's how he's going to shape them. Is it not true that some of the most difficult experiences of your life have been the most significant lessons that you've learned in your life when God has showed up big time? And he's taught you faithfully. You've seen sometimes the sin or the error of your way. But you've also seen the saving grace of God come to full fruition in your life. What God is saying to you, if you'll trust me. If you'll trust me as you move forward. I will lead you. I will lead you. God shapes his church by mission to serve his kingdom purpose. You see, God's purpose wasn't just to get his people across the river. God's purpose was to demonstrate his glory. And as the prophet says, to cover the face of the earth with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's a vision for Christianity. That's what God is doing in the world. You see, God leads his people in mission because he is a God of mission. There's no aspect of relationship with God that is not shaped out, uh, uh, within the context of mission. And the people who live in relationship with God and follow Him, i.e. Christians, Christ followers, those who live by faith in Jesus live in His mission. There's no concept of following Jesus outside of mission. Every second of your life, every activity of your being, every ounce of your energy, every exertion of your will is all under the mission of God for the purposes for which he sets forth. You see, one problem today is that we've narrowly defined mission. We've made it a to-do list. We've made it an activity. We've made it a trip or a task that we only engage in at certain times and check off our list to satisfy God. But friends, all of these things, while they are, shall we say, included in and representative of God's mission, they are not the sum total nor even the primary essence of what God's mission is in the world. Mission is living as a kingdom citizen, honoring God through faithful obedience as worship, and and then sharing the saving knowledge of God with others. And all of this is done by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ alive within us. 
We cannot quarantine quadrants of our life and believe that any aspect of our life will actually honor God. It's all or nothing. He's Lord, liar or lunatic as the old apologetic goes. There is no expression of biblical Christianity that is absent of serving God's kingdom mission. But hear me, friends. In mission, God shapes the church to serve his kingdom in the world. What a beautiful picture. The second trait I want you to see this morning, verses 6 through 11, is that God shapes the church by holiness as his treasured possession. God shapes the church by holiness as his treasured possession. Look at verse 6 with me. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Look at verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Let me stop there for a minute. Look at me. How many Hebrews were there when God began to choose the nation? Y'all know I give Bible quizzes. You should have gotten ready for this one. How many Hebrews were there? There were none. And then God called Abram and did what? Made one. And so when he says, it's not because you were great in number, you weren't. Right? You you understand what God, God is taking them back and going, look, do not deny what I have already done for you and in your life when you look ahead to what I'm calling you to follow me in with your life. Do not deny the past. And what God has done in redeeming you. And if you're here today and and you're not a believer in Christ, you've never become a Christian, you've never placed your faith in Christ and repented of your sins, let me tell you this, God will take all of your past. He will not just wipe it away. You hear me? He will not erase your past. He will redeem it. Did you hear that? God doesn't wipe the slate clean to start over. He meets you where you are He redeems everything that was and uses it for your good so he can use you for his glory. I don't know about you, friends, but there's too much of my life that would have had to have been erased for God to be able to use me, for me to want to trust him. But when I realized the gospel was redeeming and not just erasing, does he count your sins against you? No, he erases the penalty of your sin, yes, cleanses you as white as snow but he redeems your past so he can set a course of direction for your future like you would never know possible that's what he's talking about here let's keep rolling the lord set his love on you and chose you for you are the fewest of all peoples verse 8 but it is because the lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore To your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And now, look, here's the essence of this second trait of holiness by which God shapes his people. Verse 9, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. Stop there. 
Listen, friends, God shapes the church by holiness as his treasured possession. Now, if anything makes people more sheepish, I don't know of it. Because when you look at a a room of people who claim to be Christians, who love Jesus and want to follow him, and you ask the question, who in the room is holy? Nothing is more... Well, I mean, God's word says we are, but do you remember yesterday? I don't think I'm going to raise my hand because of yesterday. Do you remember this morning? You know what? Let's just move on to the next question and take a pass on this one, right? We're so quick to deny God's word and what it says about us. And when I talk about Christians being holy, when the Bible talks about Christians being holy, again, it's not referring to your worth, merit, perfect performance or accomplishments or achievements or intellect. It's talking about what God has done for you. And what he places upon you. God's people are chosen for a special purpose. They are, listen, hear me, his treasured possession. We'll come back to that a number of times in the New Testament. Moses carefully ensures that the people understand their special status with God as the foundation for their purpose in this life. You see, God chooses people not because of them, but because of Him. God chooses His people not for them, but for Him. This is so vital for us. God's people as His treasured possession means that Christians today for us, we serve as a specific instrument to make Him known in the world. As God's treasured possession, we are a specific instrument to make Him known in the world. There are three aspects of our identity as God's children that are important for Christians to remember today. And the first one is this, we are a people. That's a plural word there, not a a singular word. And that means that we're not just a collection of individuals, but we are united as a singular whole. We are a people. And essential to our understanding of of ourselves as Christian is this, is that we are not alone and we are not on our own. You see, the local church is the expression of God's people in the world. It's not optional, it's essential. And friends, when you neglect to identify yourself as God's people by being together with the church, what you do is this. You use Christ's crucifixion to attempt your own fix for life instead of identifying yourself in the crucifixion of Christ so that you die to self so you can live unto him. But when you die with Christ, you live together as God's people. The local church with which you identify should receive a special relational priority in the Christian life because you hold a specific responsibility for those people. The local church in which you identify should hold a special relationship relationally with you because you hold a specific identity and responsibility with them. Now you look around the room and you go, man, I don't know the vast majority of these people. Neither do I. Just kidding. I know the majority, like 50.2%. I don't know. I haven't counted. That's not the point of what he's saying. He's not saying we have to know everyone the same way. That's impossible. No one has that much relational bandwidth unless the church is like under 25 or 30. 
And then other things are growing so often that aren't healthy in that. I'm not saying 25 to 30 is a bad number for a church. I grew up in small churches. I love them. I pastored churches where we had 20 in worship. Don't take everything I say too literal, okay? Especially when you know I'm illustrating. Wow, I'm just talking myself in circles here. Come back to the point. My point is this, friends. It's not that everyone is equal, but that some ones are a priority. Christians so often today, they pick and choose, they flutter throughout the world, and they look for somebody that wears a label, but they don't know how they live that label out. They don't know if they're being faithful to the name of Christ or if they're just bearing it out for the sake of relational aloneness and loneliness. And they attach to them and go, they're Christians, I must be able to give them a specific responsibility for me or influence in my life. And when something happens, they go, what happened? And they don't want to cause, create uh, relational trouble here. So they go, well, God must be wrong about that. And so what do they do? They're creating commitments. They're entering into contractual agreements. They're making commitments that cause them to forsake God as their first priority. So that they can remain politically correct. So that they can remain remain relationally connected. Whatever the word may be. And my point is this. God gives us the church through which he puts people around us for the explicit purpose of pouring into us. And giving us responsibility, the giftings to express, and and the whole identity of the church. You see, when you apply relational priority to people for which you have no relational responsibility, you forsake your priorities to serve a purpose that cannot benefit you as you need. You forsake yourself as a Christian, is what you do. Because you're flying solo. When you fly solo, that makes you the Savior. Essential for the faithful biblical understanding of Christian identity is to identify with a local church. The second aspect of our identity is that God's people, not only plural, but are chosen. God chooses people to serve His specific purpose. You see, the Israelites' special status with God as His treasured possession was not for entitlement, but a distinction among the world in order to make Him known. And here's what they did with it. They used their special status with God, that chosen status, in order to justify and rationalize isolating themselves from people. We're not like them. We don't want to get their cooties. Right? And they also used their special chosen status with God not only to isolate from people in the world, but to elevate themselves above other people. Look throughout the New Testament. Look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Man, they couldn't even interact with people and justify their status among. That's how significantly removed from the general populace that they had become. And that's why they accused Jesus of being a friend of sinners. Right? That's what they said about him. Why? Because they had used their chosen status from God to isolate themselves from people in the world. You see, God's intention was that His children's chosen status would serve not as a justification or rationale to isolate or to elevate, but rather to demonstrate that they would be a unique calling to demonstrate the glory of His everlasting love among the people of the world. 
That's at the heart of God throughout the Bible. God's children as his treasured possession are chosen to display the riches of his everlasting love. The third aspect of our identity in this is this, that God's people, plural, are chosen for holiness. Not chosen for happiness, not chosen for pleasure, not chosen for our personal benefit or for our personal will. But Christians are chosen for the distinct holiness of God. You know, holiness is so often misunderstood. And that's why I think we react in the way that we do when we talk about being holy before God. I can confidently talk about being holy in my life, not because I believe it tells a testimony about how good my actions are or right my thinking is, but rather it just gives a faithful testimony about how powerful our God really is. That's what it means in holiness. You see, distinctive in relationship with God through His ever-abiding presence, that's holiness. It's not perfect performance. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, for God's temple is holy. He's talking about the body, and he says, you are that temple. Talking to Christians. You're the temple of God. Why? Because His presence is in you. And he's abiding within you. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 says this, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You see, our holiness is not dependent upon our perfect performance, but it is contingent upon the finished perfect performance of Jesus Christ. It's done. Period. At the end of the sentence, it's said. It's finished to quote him on the cross. And that is our holiness. It's in relationship to God, not in appeasing or satisfying God's holy demand, but rather in receiving through that relationship what he has done for us. Therefore, the habits of our life should demonstrate the one who inhabits our life. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 when he talks about uh, you should have nothing to do with with, uh, those who, who are practicing openly and blatantly sexual immorality because it will it will cause you to create alignments that will lead you away. And it's not that you can't love them, but it is that you are living a distinctive life. In every way, set apart. That's what holiness means, that you are set apart. You are living in proportion to what you know God to be. See, the purpose of our holiness is also misunderstood. We're not made holy because of our own merit or accomplishment, but rather because of God's faithfulness. And God doesn't make us holy to elevate us to say, Wow, look at Lane, he's pretty impressive. That's good, you know. No, but rather, God makes us holy to show everyone else who He is. The great power of His love and the realness of that love for other people. And so our holiness is a unique calling, friends, not to isolate from or to elevate above, but rather as we penetrate into the world to demonstrate the abounding love of God in the world, even for His enemies, for sinners. Do you know how many people were not God's enemies before they became a Christian? Y'all didn't study at all, did you? I know they're trick questions. That's why they're called a pop quiz. 
I never took a pop quiz that wasn't full of trick questions. Right? I didn't know any of the stuff. None. Not one. Every person who's ever become a Christian was an enemy of God before they were saved. God's never saved his friend. He's only saved his enemies. You ever think about that? I know you weren't as bad as a lot. You were pretty bad. Right? That's the abounding love of God. And that's the unique calling of Christians in the world. And why God makes us holy. To demonstrate his abounding love. To make us his treasured possession. We are loved not because we are meritorious to be loved. We are loved because God can't not love. And how powerful that is. Christian holiness faithfully lived out demonstrates our response in faith to God's faithfulness in covenant. God shapes the church by holiness as his treasured possession. The third trait is this. God shapes the church by blessing in order to display his abundant love. That second trait flows right into the third and says this. Look at verse 12 through 16. I'm just going to read the first part of it for us. He says this. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. And then he goes on for four more verses and just talks about the abundance pouring out of God's blessings upon you for this. But what does it say? It says, he loved you, he blessed you, and he will multiply you. You see, God's faithfulness to his covenant was never determined by the Israelites' obedience. God's faithfulness to you is never determined by your perfect performance. Oh, I think I've hit a nerve. A place where a lot of people don't fully trust that that's true with God. There's just something in us that says, no, but if I don't do right, God won't love me. If I don't do right, God won't be with me. God won't fulfill his promise to me. Let me ask you this. How many times did the Israelites fail? The answer is not zero. The answer is every time, right? There's not a time they got it right. And when they did get it right, they used it as belligerent arrogance to hold it against God, right? This is so familiar. Is it not? That's what they did. And and so how do we know that God's covenant is not contingent upon their obedience? Well, by this point in the story, he's still with them, right? He went and got them. He took them out of Egypt. We know that if it had been contingent upon their obedience, they would have never gotten out of Egypt. But they did. Why? Because it was contingent upon God's love for them. God's faithful to his covenant. You say, but what about these commands to obey, Pastor? What about the words? I'm getting there. You see, faith in God transforms how we experience Everything in life. What was determined by the people's obedience was their experience of God's blessing. When we trust and we obey God's commands, His blessings flow in the daily, moment-by-moment experience with Him. But friends, when we make the conscious choice to live outside of His commands in contrast or opposition to His commands, what we do is we walk away from God and we place our lives under the curse that sin brings to us. 
We make that conscious choice. And even in those moments when we walk away and live under the curse of sin, even the things that might appear as a blessing actually begin to work to destroy us. And the very tangible ways that God blessed you in your experience when you were living in obedience to Him, if you allow that to become belligerent, self-trust, self-worth, or anything else, those will be the very tangible things that crush you because they're cursing you without God's blessing over you. You ever just had too much money and didn't know what to do with it? There are people who money's crushing them. You ever had too much stuff, just didn't know what to do with it? There are people who have so much stuff, and listen, they went after it with a great fervor, but it's crushing them. Why? Because they've used it. They may have even received it as God's blessing. Everything they were given in the new land was God's blessing. Everything. But when they used it to become self-worthy, self-trusting, self-reliable, they took God's blessing. They cursed His name with it. And they cursed their own lives and their experience with it. Does it mean God wasn't faithful to them? No. What God say? You oppose me, I'll oppose you to your face. God loves us. That's called discipline. He will come after us because he loves us. And he will live faithful to his covenant because he will not do otherwise. You see, friends, if the church lives no different than the world in the world, why would the world believe that what God had for the church to be any better than what the world already had? See, being a Christian isn't just about doing different stuff. It's about doing life differently. That's why stewardship is so important. I'm talking about the stewardship of all of life, not just how you manage your money. Money's part of it, but so is sex. So is time. So is every aspect of your life. The gospel redeems it all to bring honor and glory to God. It's not just a yes or no. There are things we need to say no to. And he tells us in here, we'll see that in just a moment. There are things we need to say yes to because they're from God. There are things we need to take and redeem, if you will. Use them in a different way. The world doesn't understand why we give sacrificially and generously. Just so somebody can preach, just so the gospel can be heard. That doesn't make sense to the world. Oh, it's a good cause. It's a humanitarian need. It's a, a nonprofit organization that meets a niche. Good, give some, give a little money to it and feel better about yourself. If that's all you're giving to the church is to you, I want to tell you that's not biblical. Your giving to the church is a representation of what God has given for you. And God has blessed us to the extent that we can respond to His grace even through money, even through our calendar and our time. And you say, yeah, but it's not the same. It's not the same, and it's never going to be the same. But we're not trusting it, we're trusting Him. And we're just showing Him and showing the world that we are trusting Him. That's what God's getting, that's the heart of what Moses is teaching the people here. You've got to go in and live not just differently, but distinctly unto God. 
in the way that you live your life. You see, blessing is God's unique bestowal of his presence, of his power, and of purpose upon your life so you can experience it to use it for his purposes in the world. That's what God's blessing is all about. It's his people handling the things of the world differently than and distinctively from the way the world handles them, whether it's material things or whether it's relational things. You see, whether or not we trust God in the way we live determines how the things of this world affect us and infect us, whether we enjoy them as God's blessing or whether we are enslaved by them as a curse upon us. The church is a people who live in God's covenant and enjoy God's blessing as a demonstration of God's love and goodness in the world. How powerful this is that God shapes the church by blessing us. And and don't you understand that when he blesses us and the world looks at us and goes, man, you've made it, you're successful. No, God gave it and I want to be generous. And I want glory to abound through me. They go, what? There must be something greater than just the stuff and the relationship. And that's how we bear witness. The fourth trait is this. God shapes the church by remembering his saving work to remain faithful in mission and fervent in worship. And wow, how he just, he becomes so pointed here. Look at verses 17 to 26 with me. I'm going to read verse 17 and 18 and verse 21. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and all of Egypt. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst. Verse 21, a great and awesome God. God shapes the church, friends, when we remember his saving work so that we can stay faithful in mission and fervent in our worship. Moses reminds the people that faithfulness in their worship and faithfulness in mission or faithfulness in worship while serving God's mission is vital for them. But listen, the hard realities of mission will challenge us, will they not? Just as they challenge them. If mission is understood as basically the sum total of how we live in faith, uh, in, in obedience by faith unto God, then can it be said that it will challenge us? Are you familiar with any trials in your life? Have you ever experienced what you understood to be a test? Have you ever encountered difficult people? Have things never, uh, ever not happened with the speed with which you wanted them to happen? And you begged God, God, please do it yesterday or I would have prayed for it tomorrow. Right? Have you ever had the experience of temptations that became so overwhelming to you, you were convinced that the indulgence and the application of that temptation would be a greater pleasure, even though you knew it was fleeting and temporary, than the eternal pleasure that God was giving to you? Yes, we all have. We all do. And what Moses is saying to them is that you must guard your life against these things. You must remember the powerful hand of God that has saved you. You must remember the majesty of God's saving work for us in order to trust the reality of his presence that is with us or your heart will be filled and afraid of the things that come against you. 
the things that just come up in life. You see, mission and the faithful living of it always produces fears and insecurities because sin is being confronted. And the question is not, will fear arise? But for the Christian, the question is this, which fear will rule your heart? Will it be the fear of God or the fear of man? Will it be the fear of God or the fear of what if? Faithful worship is the only answer to overcome fears that arise in mission. Let me just conclude today in this way. Very briefly, talking about the value of worship for your life in remaining faithful. You see, worship returns us to God's throne to remember that the battle is His. It's like we get to hit the pause button for a minute when we come before the throne and just remember, wait a minute. God is not telling me to do all of this for him. He's telling me what he's done for me. And he's leading me to go receive what he's provided. You see, Deuteronomy 7, if you read this chapter, and I would encourage you to go back and do that, time and time again. I counted 17 distinct times when it says this. God's done this for you. God's provided this for you. He's given this to you. He's accomplished this. He's 17 times. If you broke some of them out, like where he's talking about all the blessings, like you'll get into the mid to upper 20s of when he's just talking about what God has done. Never once does he say, you must do this to appease God or to please God. God's already fought the battle. The battle is his. We follow him as he fights for us. Worship also reminds us that God is great and awesome. And I don't mean awesome like the four exclamation point awesome you put on Facebook when you, you know, put an article out there or quote or whatever. I'm talking about in the ultimate definition of the word, the kind of awe that when you experience his presence, it throws you to your knees and puts you on your face, not because you couldn't, but because there was no other right response to his presence. Friends, when you remember what God has brought you through in your past, it gives you a very clear perspective on your present and on your future. When you remember what He saved you from and what He's redeemed in you, it reminds you of the power and of the majesty. And it fills you to know who this God is that is with you. Beholding the power of God in worship is what calms and cures the fears that arise in mission. And worship renews us in God's strength and in God's faithfulness. What did Moses tell him? If you read from verse 18, uh, excuse me, verse 22 through the end, he begins to talk about the different elements or instruments of worship of the Canaanites. And he says, don't do that. Get rid of that, burn it, cut it down, destroy it, have nothing to do with it, completely destroy it. And why? He told them to destroy all the instruments in the land in order to remain fully devoted to God. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Your faithfulness to God will be more determined, hear me, in number by what you say no to in the world and singularly what you say yes to with God, to Him. Just because you see it, just because you think it, because you hear it, because you want it, doesn't mean that you should have it, take it, act on it, listen to it, or indulge in it. 
you need to know the difference between temptation and entering into sin. Because even Jesus was tempted, as we read in Hebrews, yet without sin. See, temptation is God's way of saying, hey, you know what that is. Destroy it. Kill it. Have nothing to do with it. You will not stop all temptation from from showing up in your life, but only you can stop it from taking root in your heart. Here's what one commentator said about this. We must deal decidedly with the lust that war against our souls. Show them no mercy. Mortify them. Crucify them. And utterly destroy them. We are in danger of having fellowship with the works of darkness if we take pleasure in fellowship with those who do such works. Whatever brings us into a snare brings us under a curse. Friends, intentionally fueling faithful worship of God destroys ensnaring sin and enslaving idols. You need worship more desperately than we could imagine. And God stands closer and more ready to lead you in it than we could dream possibly. See, by mission, by blessing, by holiness, and by remembering, God shapes his people to live in the world in such a way that would demonstrate his abundant love and make his glory known to all. Here's what I want to remind you of as I close today. As we remember how God shapes the church, we need to remember this. The Israelites weren't perfect, and neither are we. But Jesus was, and he continues to be for us today. You see, God saved his people in the Old Testament by crushing a wicked, vile Pharaoh and delivering them from his crushing hand. God saves all people ultimately who put their faith in him by crucifying a perfect Savior who willingly laid down his life and offered himself up as the perfect sacrifice for our sin. The first salvation was not complete, but it pointed to the one that would be. And salvation in Jesus Christ is finished, it is full, it is complete. Do you know Jesus? Have you put your faith in Him? Are you trusting Him for eternal life? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need you more today than we even know. But to the extent that we do know, Lord, we pray that you would bring us into a deeper understanding of what salvation is, of what you have done for us and what it means for our life. For you are shaping a people for yourself to make the glorious riches of your name known in the world. And God, whatever stands in front of each individual person today to deceive them, to distract them, or deter them, I pray that the great power of the Holy Spirit of God would remove that obstacle And fill their heart and their life with faith to believe. Do that even in this time. Friend, if you're here today and you're a Christian, you've placed your faith in Jesus. You know that he saved you. 
and you are living in obedience by faith to him you know you're not perfect but you know he freely forgives and today the spirit of God is speaking to you and he's put something on your heart he's laid something heavy on your mind maybe he's been dealing with it for an extended period of time or maybe it's just arisen today but God's saying this to you this is the point at which you need to trust me today don't try to distract him don't try to throw other things in his way just say yes God and my question to you is this what do you need to believe about God today to trust him what step what action is he calling you to follow him in by faith in order to develop a habit of the one who inhabits you Christian are you ready to say yes and follow the Lord if you're here today and you're not a Christian you don't hate God or maybe you are mad at God but you've never come to a point where you've said I repent of my sins and turn away from them I put my trust my faith in Christ alone and I want to receive the salvation that he has for me the new life I want to invite you today just to say, Lord Jesus, I know I don't understand all that it means, but I know I'm supposed to place my faith in you today. Forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me as you promised you would. And save me. Make me your child, your treasured possession. And I say yes to you today. Friends, if that's your prayer this morning, would you just let us encourage you and counsel you as we sing You can come to the front. We would love to pray with you. Maybe it's after the service you want to come up. Just just let somebody celebrate with you. Whatever the case may be, let us all stand and respond to the Lord as the worship team leads us in song.